you know, if you think about the animal world, when, you know, like, for instance, when a wolf has a pack, ultimately the baby wolves have to find their own territory. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're animals too. So we, we always try to find our own territory. Or maybe it got too cold or too hot where they, where they were and they decided they wanted to move over. And curiosity too. I mean, we're curious beings. But, but part of that is that you have to remember they came down the coast and at the end of the last ice age, when most of the, a lot of the fresh water was tied up in ice, the ocean was 30 miles west of where it is now. Oh, wow. That was land. Where they came down, that was land. And so a lot of the early settlements that they had where they stopped and where they maybe made towns are now covered by water. They're out on the continental shelf. Oh, wow. So if, if you look at the archaeological stuff, the oldest archaeological sites are down in the Channel Islands, down around around Santa Barbara, and those islands have been there a long time, and oh. they were they were there when they came, and that's where and so they're still above water. Oh wow, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah, the oldest the oldest archaeological sites are are down there. So, what was the name of this indigenous group? The ones that were here. Yeah. We're called the Chiguan, C-H-I-G-U-A-N, Chiguan. Now, we aren't sure about exactly, you remember, they did not have a written language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they, everything was passed down orally or by example or by ritual. So the names that we have are taken, are phonetic translations from the Spanish. When the Spanish came here, they phonetically wrote the names down. So the name that the name phonetically, the name that the tribe that had, and they were from about Half Moon Bay to Point Montera, from the ocean to skyline, about nine square miles. They were the Chiguan. Wow. Now they were fairly small. There were only about when the Spanish came, they estimated there were only about 50 of them. 50? Oh. 50 of them. Very yep. small. Most of the tribes in, in, in what is now from like San Francisco down to Monterey, they're all called the Ohlone's. And that's the name again that we gave them that they didn't give themselves. Okay. But there were lots of tribes and lots of different languages. You know, California is very diverse. You know, we have all these little microclimates and everything. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. there was equivalent diverse in the people. The people had different, similar but different political structures. Some of them were matrilineal, women sort of ruled, others were men ruled. Um, some of, they have generally the same type of beliefs, but, but different. And a lot of it had to do with the environment that they were living in, because they were living basically sustenance living. You know, they didn't grow things like we, like they didn't do agriculture, like we do agriculture. They did agriculture, but not in a much different way. So why, why were there so few of them? Like, was it, did they have like controlled births or something? The reason that there were, there was a, basically they were, their population was controlled by the resources that they had. 
So was the amount of food that was available to them. So, so they lived off of basically the resources that were on their land. And that's why they took care of their land, because that was their that was how they lived. So they never gave birth blindly. They like had to look at their resources and determine if there's space for one more of us or um something like that. Yeah. They because to avoid, um, you know, if, if you intermarry within your own family, you have all this genetic problems. Yes. What they did is they, they married mostly in other tribes. So like 80% of a tribe probably was born someplace else. So they just stayed really small because that was what their territory could support. Okay. Um, so Isha and I did a little bit of research about tribe pools and we learned that the animals have to endure many challenges because when the tide is out and there's barely any water in the tide pool, they have to face the extreme heat or cold, the predators and the low oxygen. So we were wondering how have animals adapted to these like extreme challenges? Is it like through evolution? Evolution takes a long time. You know, uh, although things do have to, to adapt, we have some, a lot of animals have some flexibility and are, are resilient enough. If things don't change really dramatically, they can adapt to it. Like, for instance, you could move to a place that's a little bit colder or a little bit warmer. Okay. And it would be, it would be okay to you. You, would, you could adjust. It's when things get too far things really have to have to be what happens when if things get really too hot for us what we do is we move to someplace that's cooler yeah if things get too cold for us we move to someplace that's warmer and that's what's going to happen and wow. when when you think about what's going on what's happening in the ocean now is a, there's a variety of things that are happening um we talk about climate change and and warming is one thing but also the acidity of the ocean is increasing. It's actually decreasing. It's going down. It's becoming more acidic. And all the, all the senses, you know, animals, including us, rely on our senses. Yeah. And so it's all chemistry. So smelling is chemistry. Seeing is actually chemistry. All of these senses are involved in chemistry. And chemical reactions are altered by temperature, by pH, by the availability of oxygen, and all of those things. In addition to acidity, the levels of oxygen in the ocean are going down because it's getting warmer, and warmer water holds less oxygen. Okay. So lots of things are going on down there, and it's very difficult to study it because there are, it's so much going on and besides all of those changes we're polluting it you know we're putting all kinds of, of materials in primarily um fertilizers and stuff that run off the land are going down there and they're affecting uh, algal blooms and things like that which affects the oxygen levels all the plastic the microplastics we're putting in down there affects the animals mm -hmm. by on chemical sensing they can smell basically in the water 
molecules. We smell things in the air. They smell things that are soluble in water. They can smell things if they're close. And that's what most little animals do. And we don't know how these changes are going to affect their sense of smell, their ability to reproduce. All, all those things may, are, are maybe changing at the same time. Okay. Are there any special adaptions that you see that animals that live in tide pools have that other animals that live outside tide pools might not have? So like, does a starfish in a tide pool have um, different adaptations than a starfish not in a tide pool? Well, sea stars are able to shut down their metabolism. So when they're, they breathe through their skin. Okay. So they basically shut down their metabolism. They, they, they hibernate, if you will, for a short period of time when they're supposed to air because they have to have, they have to breathe through their skin in the water. Oh. So they, they basically shut down. Other things also attach very very tightly to to you know so they so they when you're when you're um, when you're out of the water most of the tide pool animals try to hang on and stay wet. And so a lot of them have different strategies for doing that. Oh. You know, like the like the anemones, they fill their they fill their their guts with water, and then they close up, and they cover themselves with sand, which is which acts like a sunscreen for them. Oh. Yeah. So that's that's how they survive being out of water. So how much water is that then if an anemone sucks up water? So how much water do they suck up? As much as their gut will hold. And that'll depend on how big the how big the animal is. Oh wow. So you said the starfishes go into like a hibernation. So like does that mean they're basically like hibernating for the couple of hours that the tide is out and then when the tide's in they like come out of hibernation? Yeah, and some of them actually have the ability to <clears throat> They have these glands called duoglands, like the, the um, ochre stars. If you try to pull an ochre star off of a reef, no, it's really, really stuck down. Oh, wow. And what it does is it, it has these glands, and one of the glands secretes like adhesive, and that's what locks them down. So they actually glue themselves to the rock. Oh, and then they have another gland that secretes an enzyme that dissolves the adhesive once they get covered with water so they can move around. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. So that's protection from being torn off the rocks by, by, by land creatures that would come out of there or by birds or anything like that. Wow, so like how strong is that adhesive then? Like Pretty strong, you know, it takes a lot to pull and they have a lot of tube feet that stick on too. So it's very strong. Oh, wow. What was um, something that made Fitzgerald so abundant in life? Um, as I said, the diversity and also the upwelling, the amount of nutrients. When the wind blows, it creates an upwelling. So there's these very cold currents running off the coast. And when the wind blows in the right way, it brings cold, nutrient-rich water up. And that creates nutrients for the algae. And so you have very, very vibrant algae growth and a lot of things, a lot of animals eat the algae and a lot of things that eat the algae get eaten by other things. So you have this, all this nutrition 
you have to have nutrients in the water in order to have a vibrant algal and animal life. And this is one thing when, when you think about how things are tied together, you think about the what's the biggest animal we have in the ocean? Or there are whales, blue whales. The whales. The whales played play a huge part in the ecology of the ocean because they eat a lot. The reason they're so big is because they eat a lot. We get big if we eat a lot, which means they poop a lot. And their poop is nutritious. And yeah. so when you cut all the, the population of whales down, you get less whale poop out there. And the whale poop was like fertilizer to all the algae out there, wow. all the algae out there. So when we cut, when we started hunting whales and cut the whale population down, we were adversely affecting the ecology of the ocean without even knowing about it. Wow. So whale poop is so important. That's so cool. Absolutely. So uh, what are the advantages of animals living in tide pools? What are the advantages? Yeah. Why not like not live in a tide pool if they have to face so many challenges? Then Do they get anything uh, like an advantage for living in a tide pool? Well, they, they uh, you know, there are, there are challenges every place. We, we are challenged. Um, and it just has to do with what challenges you can, you can deal with as, as animals. So, you know, like they, being able to get out of the water prevents them from being, from having predators that are in the water going after them. Okay. So there aren't a lot, you know, being in that milieu, there aren't a lot of other animals that can do that. So you cut down the amount of predators that you have, basically. Uh, okay. So, like, then are they able to deal better than with land animals than water animals then? Is, like, is that a thing there? Well, they have, they have uh, defenses. Like, a lot of them have shells. Yeah. So it's difficult to break through the shells or they lock down and it's difficult to get them off. Um, so some uh, humans uh, are capable of probably the, the biggest predator of, of, of marine life. Uh, some of the other animals, uh, you know, like if you were a coyote, you wouldn't go out there and try to eat barnacles or, or abalone or anything. You try to eat the seals, but you wouldn't try to eat, you know, a lot of the shellfish because you couldn't couldn't crunch down on them. Okay. So, and why are tide pools important? So does having tide pools somehow benefit humans? Yeah, they're beautiful. <laughs> so, um, what is the, so are they like important generally in like the ecosystem? What would happen if we didn't have tide pools with the rest of the ecosystem, like the actual ocean get affected? Probably. Um, you have to remember that most of the animals that live in tide pools are um, broadcast spawners. Um, that means that the males will throw their sperm into the ocean, females will throw their eggs into the ocean, the eggs will get fertilized, and then the larvae that come from fertilized eggs are out in the ocean. So a lot of the food that is in the, in the ocean comes from animals in the tide pool, the larvae. Oh, wow. So, you know, because you've got a lot of that going on, 
That also, that, that affects the, ultimately the food chains throughout the ocean. So is there like a percentage of how much food comes from tide pools then? Mm, I don't know the answer to that one. No. Certainly close in, I mean, maybe deep, far, far out in the ocean, that's not the case, but closer in where the continental, where the continental shelf ends, it's probably a, really important to the overall ecology. So um, um, what can we do to conserve tide pools as kids? What can you do as kids? Um, you, can, you can urge your parents to vote for people who care about the environment. Okay. Probably the most important thing you could do. Okay. You yourselves can try to be, to try to cut down on the amount of pollution that you, you know, be careful of what you, what you eat, be careful of what you burn, you know, try to, try to be ecological, um, you know, cut down on the amount of plastics that you do, travel, you know, ride your bike rather than getting in the car, fossil fuels. Probably the political stuff is the biggest thing we can do right now is to get people in our government that are going to actually address climate change. So are there any programs that kids like us can attend to learn more about these tide pools and the animals and plants in them? Does Fitzgerald have programs or do you know any other programs? Well, one of the main things that the group that I belong to, the Friends of Fitzgerald, we were formed to basically do tide pool tours for school groups. And that's still what we mainly do. In 2010, the state uh, of California decided to set aside areas along the coast of California, which would, which would be totally protected. That you couldn't take anything and you couldn't disturb anything in those schools. And Fitzgerald is one of those areas. They're called marine protected areas. So they extend all the way along the coast. There's a whole, I forget how many there are. There's probably about 50 all the way from the, from the Mexican border, all the way up to Oregon. Oh yeah. And so what, what they're doing now, there's a, what's called an MPA network, Marine Protected Area Network. And this is a, this is a bunch of areas like the San Mateo County is one of the networks. Like Los Angeles County is one that has a network. And what they're doing is they're in the process of starting to do some seminars, which will be publicly available online this fall for the public about climate change and the ocean and what we can do about it. Listeners, I hope you learned something new about tide pools. I know I did. I hope to see you again in the next episode. Bye.